0: Nehemiah is the story of God keeping His promises in spite of our sin. It is the story of God working through His people for their flourishing both spiritually, through ordering their lives around His Word, and physically through the restoration of structures to protect and provide for them. It is the story of the establishment of justice, the restoration of worship, and the declaration of God's mighty acts, the opposition to God's program. And the dependence of God's people in his power to affect change. Nehemiah offers us a sketch of what Jesus has done and continues to do through his church. He has fundamentally defeated the enemies that oppose and enslave God's people so that now through his continual presence and power by the Holy Spirit, we work to see God's kingdom expanded and his world transformed. Like Nehemiah, we work to renew a city.
1: Alright, kids ages 3 through pre-K can head down Holy Cross Kids Worship. Mrs. is Gil Martin, I'll see you there. The rest of you go ahead and turn your Bibles to Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are some on the back table we'd love to give you. Uh, go ahead and pick one of those up before you leave. It's good to have the text in front of you though. Look, what we're... What we're doing here this morning, especially as we enter into this time, seems mundane for many of us. It's kind of normal. This is what we do week in and week out. We listen to this guy talk and yada, 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 and he talks and talks. Uh, but the experience of preaching, and Christian preaching, that is, 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 uh, is not mundane at all. And I know that for many of us that experience has kind of historically been about uh, chicken soup for the soul, Right, A collection of stories that may or may not have any bearing on your life that are meant to be sentimental and kind of get you crying, really don't make any difference to you, um, or, or just kind of take the form of some kind of spiritual moralism. But if we're to believe the Bible, faithful preaching of God's Word is meant to be a transformative event. God's Word goes out, and by His Holy Spirit, it renews us and empowers us to be agents of that renewal in the world, which means that you and I are entering into a very powerful moment. The last week, as we came into this time, we looked at the fact that, God, that the work of God both in us and the work of God in the world uh, brings opposition. And of course it does. That's, that's a no-brainer. We know that. We've experienced that. And we saw how Nehemiah responded to that opposition, though, uh, through believing, first and foremost, that this was God's fight and not his That it was, in fact, God was the prime mover in the world. That he was the one who was acting in grace to see people renewed and places renewed. And it wasn't just Nehemiah, but it was God. And then he responded then through prayer and through perseverance. This week we look at another form of opposition. Problems that happen within the community itself. What we're going to see is a perfect opportunity to apply the renewal that Nehemiah is seeking bring. So, if you have your place in God's Word, we're going to be reading chapter 5, verses 1-19. to I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. Um, This is a longer passage, so bear with me, but it is given for our good. So, hear it as God's very Word. Now, there arose an outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive." There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials, and I said to them, You are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent, could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. They they then said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you said. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said... So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration. 40 shekels of silver, even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. And I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every... And every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we ask your blessing and your grace. Would you speak to us by your word? Would you work in us and through us? Would you renew us as we look to the renewal of a people? You work that same renewal in us this day. Whatever we've brought with us into this room, we pray that you would meet us there, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts. You would let all that Jesus has done come to the fore and the one who stands up here fall to the wayside because, Jesus, you are the hope of the world. You alone hold the words of eternal life. So we ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Listen, uh, most of you know, because most of you have been here for a while, that, uh, that I am someone who likes to get all the cards on the table, so um, I just want to do that now. Um, let's just admit that this passage is troubling, right? It's troubling for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think both of those are born up in, into some of our cultural assumptions, because you see this passage deals with uh, economics. How we use our money, our attitude towards the poor. And some of us, of course, come to the table with the cultural assumption that tells us that our money is our money and that if we got it legally, then we get to do with it whatever we want. That's all our business. Others of us come to the table with the assumption that economic equality is somehow a self-evident societal goal. right? That somehow this is just kind of a duh moment in the world as if the, remo- the removal of the playground ethic of, of that's not fair is somehow written into the fabric of the world. But neither of those things is true. This passage does speak to the issue of disparity and its place in a renewed community, but it does so from the fundamental assumption that there is a God who has modeled a different kind of practice to us, a God that we image. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it in three ways, okay? And there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at uh, problems and sources. Then we're going to look at solutions and practices. And then lastly, we're going to look at grace and mobility, okay? Problems and sources, solutions and practices, and then grace and mobility. You Ready? Let's get started. All right. This passage really does break down rather, rather nicely for us. We're going to begin looking at the problem itself, a problem of disparity. Look at verses 1 to 5. Here's what we know up to this point. The construction of this wall, Nehemiah has, been, has, has come to the city and he's mobilized the people to be rebuilding, to be in the process of rebuilding this wall around the city because in the ancient world, a city without walls was a city with no hope for, for economic flourishing, no hope for governance, no hope for security, no hope for anything. And because uh, Nehemiah wants to see this people flourish, because he thinks that's part of God's program for the world, and it is, he begins to mobilize folks to work on the wall, and it's been going on for some time. The community uh, has made it through the threat of armed conflict. We saw that last week. But now the constant labor is beginning to take its toll. It's having an economic effect, and this raises an outcry. There are three parts of this outcry. The first deal with the fact that food is difficult to come by. That's there in verse 2, right? Now, that's partly due to the fact that it says that there's a famine. Um, but apparently, the famine's not affecting everyone, so, so here's what's probably also going on at the same time. Okay? Uh, the wall construction is probably particularly to blame. Think with me. Because this isn't a period where there are supermarkets, right? Where you can just pop over to Kroger after work and it's like, okay, well, you know, it was a long day working on the wall. I uh, got, you know, mortar and all this stuff in my hands, but that's all right. I'm just going to go by the market on the way home, going to pick up some food, going to make a good dinner. If you wanted food, right, you had to work your own fields. Now, there's a problem with that. Uh, what happens if you are giving your whole day to a community wide building project? When do, you work on your own? when do you work your fields? When do you harvest your own food? When do you get the food ready that, that you're going to need to eat? The, the reality is you can't, at least not effectively. The point here seems to be that there is a group of people, and by that I mean just a group of people, not the whole people, not everyone in the city, but a group of people in the city who can't do both. They can't both work on the wall and work their own fields. Then there's the result of that in verse 3, right? You have people who cannot grow the grain they need, but are having to buy it from those who can. But there's a problem, right? I mean, think with me again. Remember, we're in the ancient world. In the ancient world, your economy was agricultural. So how do you get the money to buy food that's also money? Right? Well, you... You mortgage things, you mortgage your land, you mortgage your house, your vineyards, your income-producing properties. Now, we don't tend to feel the impact of that because many of us kind of assume the presence of a mortgage, right? Like like most of us, if you own a home, you you probably have a mortgage. um, Unless you spent the years kind of getting out of that, in which case you're celebrating life. But in the ancient world, it's different, right? Because if you didn't own your land in the ancient world, you were always going to be poor. Always. There was no such thing as upward mobility in the ancient world. If you didn't own land, you would always be poor. Which is one of the reasons why in Israel there was such a big connection to land. That the people of Israel were always supposed to have their ancestral property. Because it guarded against this kind of thing. Then there's the last aspect of this, right? So you have folks who aren't able to work their fields to, make, to get food, but because they have to feed their families, they have to buy food. And to buy food, they have to mortgage their fields so that they can buy food. And then it comes to this, verses 4 and 5. The taxes are so crippling that when you compound the problems, you can't work the fields to feed your family, You have to mortgage your fields to feed your family. You've spent your resources both to to feed your family and so you can't afford taxes. And so the only possible way that you get out of the taxes is the only thing left to you. You sell off your kids into indentured servitude to the wealthy. So let me help us a little more get into that situation in case you're needing some help. Again, the taxes that most people paid were agricultural. <laughs> See, everything is, it's, it's an agrarian society. I'm not saying they didn't have coinage. There was some there. But most, most uh, when, you're, when we're talking about a tithe or, or kind of government tax, we're talking about, okay, so when Nehemiah says he talks about the governor's uh, food allotment, where do you think it came from? That was taxes on the people, right? That was one of their taxes. Not the only one, but one of them. And so there's a large group of people in Jerusalem who are stuck in a cycle of poverty that is feeding on itself. They can't, they can't work Their fields, because they can't work their fields, they can't feed their family. Because they can't feed their families, they have to buy money to feed their, or they have to buy food to feed their families. But because they don't have any money to buy the food to feed their families, they have to mortgage their fields, which was their only way to get money to feed their families. And oh yeah, by the way, the government wants their peace. No such thing as the graduated income tax, right? Flat tax. Can't pay it. And because they can't pay it, now their children are in bondage. They are, we would call this in our society the working poor. You have a group that cannot make enough money to get ahead and is now in crippling debt. That any little hiccup in their lives, like a minor famine, which it clearly is not a major one because the rich aren't having problems... It's a minor famine. Any little hiccup is devastating to them. Now, I just described this pop problem from a situational perspective, right? Here's the circumstances they're going into play that's creating this, this uh, situation that's dire and awful. That is not the way Nehemiah looks at it, however. Look at verses 6-9 to nine for a spiritual source. Nehemiah hears this and he's livid. And he calls a great assembly, which means that he pulls, he stops work on the wall and he gets the whole city together. Everybody's coming together. Everybody. And so he is going to call out what is happening publicly. And he says this, he turns to the wealthy and he says, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And then later he says, we've bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but but you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us. Again, don't miss this because this is important. The wealthy in the city aren't having the problems. They seem to be doing just fine. In fact, they're probably, their, their situation is probably getting better, right? Because now they have more servants. They have more land. They're, they're doing all right. And that, that shouldn't be surprising, right? They would have the ability to have more workers, and the taxes wouldn't be as crippling for them. So they can have workers on the wall and workers in their fields. They can, they can actually uh, pay these taxes without a problem. But now, when the more vulnerable in their community are in trouble, they're swooping in. They're buying up their land. They're buying their kids slave, as slaves. Now, here's the thing about this. They could have very easily fooled themselves into thinking they're helping, right? Well, I mean, how would these people eat if I didn't buy their land from them so that they could eat? How, how could they? How could they actually, uh, you know, uh, pay their taxes, and, and the government wouldn't carry them off into prison unless I, I bought their kids from them. It's so nice of me to do that. I mean, I loaned them the money, right? I mean, you can't expect them to. You can't expect the, the wealthy to get nothing from that, can you? Well, that's not how Nehemiah sees it. Look at verse nine. He says this, The thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Do you hear what he just did? He just cast this in spiritual categories. Because you and I, a few minutes ago, were caught up in the the cycles of economics. And many of us, depending on your particular leaning, right? We're either thinking about the, the, the ways in which more economic freedom could have helped the situation uh, and less taxation, or you were thinking how, how more uh, regulation might have been able to help the situation. But Nehemiah takes it into a different category. In effect, he says this, you shouldn't be doing this. Instead, you should be walking with God, Nehemiah sees what is going on as incompatible with the faith that the people in the city were claiming. The God that they are claiming to worship, this is incompatible. So there are two things that I want us to hear in that statement. The first is that care for the poor, I need some of us to, those of us who who tend to lean towards the more, we need more government regulation to help these things, I need you to hear this. Care for the poor is not a self evident truth. It's not a self-evident morality. It is based on the character and practice of God. Listen, if the God of the Bible isn't real, why should you care at all about the poor? If God isn't real, then Nietzsche was right. We should just all get what we can from life and use whoever we can to get us there. There's no reason, there's no self-evident truth why you should help the vulnerable. There's nothing inherently good or noble about the poor. The Bible, the, the Bible is clear that all of us are broken, rich and poor equally, even though it can seem at times like that's not true. At times we look different, okay? So that's the first thing. The second is connected to that. If this practice, which frankly, we could very easily spin into just good business practice, Right? could very easily spin this into good you're you're buying low (laughs) right and then later maybe you can sell high but you're buying low if 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 this is simply if this practice which could be seen as good business is actually not walking with God as Nehemiah says then how we act listen to me how we act towards the financially vulnerable matters to our faith it actually matters the reason for that is simple Christianity is about grace. You see, mo- not, not most. Every other world system is not about grace. Every other world system is about, here are the rules to keep to get you right. Here are the, here are the, the practices that you need to follow. Here's, here's, here's the way you can pick yourself up using these principles. Whether those principles are a morality, a, a spirituality, or a way to appease the God. Right? Here are the ways you can do that. Christianity, however, says that you can't. It's not possible. It says that you and I are too broken for that, that we need a rescue, that that you and I owe a debt to God that none of us could ever repay. That we are, in fact, in desperate poverty before God. But that God came to pay that debt for us. We didn't do anything to merit that. It was completely by grace. It was by the unmerited favor of God. And so you and I can't earn anything before God. We, we trust in Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus because he was the one who earned everything that we couldn't. And he was the one who dealt with our great debt to God on the cross. And if that is the kind of God we walk with, if that is the kind of God we want to be like, that we've been rescued by, How can we not show grace similarly to those who, quite frankly, are in far less need than we ever were? One more thing, though. Did you notice that it isn't just the care of the poor that Nehemiah sees at stake? This is a really important thing because many of us, uh, especially if you're kind of like... uh, I don't know, like under 40, right? And, and some of you are, but over 40, sure. sure. But under 40 is just part of the cultural air that we breathe. That somehow the, the, the great um, movement of our time and care, is, is care for the marginal, care for the poor, and all of these things. It's this great push. But that's not the only motivation that Nehemiah has. In verse 9, he says that what's at stake is the taunts of the nations. The taunts of the nations aren't towards the Jews. They're towards God. In other words, it isn't just care for the marginal, care for the poor that is motivating Nehemiah. It is also the glory of God. And that those two things have to come together, in fact, to actually be part of change. Now that's problems and sources. Let's look at solutions and practices. Look down at verses 10-13. to So Nehemiah has called these dudes out in front of everybody. In other words, you've got the people whose kids, they just sold to the other guys. And those guys are like standing over here and they, maybe they've got their kid with them because they're serving them. And he, he literally calls them out in the middle of everyone, which is awesome accountability. And now he lays out a solution to the problem. He says, let us abandon this practice of exacting interest. Sounds fine, right? Right? The big deal here is that Nehemiah is actually claiming that he's part of this. He's part of the problem. Again, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? The identification thing? That part of becoming an agent of change is is identifying with the people, seeing yourself as as part of the issue. He's, He's part of the problem. He's owning that, but it gets harder. He says, return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of the money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been extracting. So here's what he's saying. Give back their stuff and give back all of the interest that you have charged them up to this point. Give it all back. In other words, stop preying on those who are economically vulnerable. They needed help, so help them. And biblically, this has strong ties to the practice of something called jubilee, okay? In the book of Leviticus... I know, it's Leviticus, okay? Leviticus is where everyone who starts their yearly Bible reading plan, they all fail. We all fail. We get, like, Genesis, Exodus, we're like, we're doing great, this is a great story. You get to Leviticus, and you're like, mold and mildew and chapter 19, Ooh, if you don't know what that is, go read later, and then you're like, and then you stop, right? But in Leviticus, God lays out this practice. Every seventh day of a week is called the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, right? And then, apart from that, you go every seventh year is considered a Sabbath for the land, and that means you're not supposed to actually till it and plant it. It's going to produce food, because, you know, if anyone's had a garden, you know that even if you don't intend to plant something, something you planted last year ends up coming up again. So it's going to produce stuff, but you're not supposed to work it. So we don't have a ton of time to go into the full practice of that. So that's every 7th year. And then every 50th year. In other words, you've got 7. You've got every 7th day and every 7th year. And every 7th, 7th, actually the 8th 7th. The 8th cycle of Sabbaths. You get this year called Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all debt in the land is forgiven. Some of you are like, sign me up like all it's every 50th year okay like but it's all debt is forgiven anyone who had their ancestral property sold who had to who had to get rid of it because of financial issues they get it back all slaves are freed it's like party central it's like a full year of partying because like this is the greatest thing ever and the reason for this practice was to be a picture of what it would look like when God came to write the world When God came to right the world to set everything to rights, it would be as if everything was just restored. Now, what Nehemiah is saying is not that, okay? But it is based on that. One of the reasons it's not that is because Nehemiah isn't demanding the debt be forgiven. He's not saying that. He's not saying, don't don't ask for any repayment of any kind. He's saying, don't, uh, He's saying, return the percentage. In other words, return the interest. But the debt's still there. But at the same time, there are strong echoes. Okay? The basic line of thought is that these folks who had the means should have helped without exploiting the crisis. They should have helped without trying to make themselves better off by the disadvantage of others. They should have used their resources as a blessing for those who didn't have them. And so the returning of these things not only has strong ties to Jubilee, but also has strong ties to the the ethic in the Old Testament of restitution. You know what you were supposed to do when you steal from people? They're paying restitution for their theft from the poor. Apparently, there's no fight over this. The wealthy agree to this. Uh, my, my guess is, is that part of that is because they were called out publicly. <laughs> Who would want to be called out publicly? And they go, no, no, I ain't doing that. Like, you, you look really bad. And so Nehemiah called them out publicly for a reason. So they agree to this. Nehemiah calls the priests and they make a vow. So get the power of this. These folks are making a vow to God, not to those people, to God. You don't need priests to make a vow to other people. Making a vow to God replete with a curse. In other words, if if I break it, may I have be shaken off and thrown away from my people. Like there's a curse if they break it. And they're making this in front of the people who they will be returning stuff to. You have a communal problem. It's met with a communal solution. With communal accountability. It's perfect. So that's how we get Uh, to a renewed solution, but then we see a renewed practice. Look down at verses 14 and 19. The book of Nehemiah is often, in in scholarly circles, you'll you'll hear it talked about about being part of sources. There are different sources that were involved in constructing it. and One of them is called the Nehemiah Memoir, right? And so this is part of that. This is clearly part of that where he breaks into, and here's what I was doing, okay? And so... We, we see here what Nehemiah's practice is. Basically, he is living what he is preaching to others. He doesn't accept the governor's food allowance. Okay? I, I talked about that before, but let me remind us. Part of the taxes on the people, not all of the taxes, part of the taxes was providing for the governor. It was his salary. The food allowance is the salary of the governor. Okay? From the people. And so apparently we are told in verse 15 that it amounted to 40 shekels of silver. Now, let me be honest with you. I, could lo- I would love to just kind of make up a, a modern equivalent to this. We have no idea how much that was. But the fact that Nehemiah says that the former governors put a heavy burden on the people and that it amounted to 40 shekels of silver leads most, most folks who read this to believe that it must have been a large amount. We're not sure how much it was, but it was a large amount of money. So Nehemiah isn't receiving a salary. But not only this, he bought no land. He bought no land. Again, he's not a a local, right? He came in from the outside. He, He built a house, which was probably the governor's house in the first place. So he repaired the house that was there, lived in the house, but he's got no land, which means he's got no future in the city. He's not trying to secure himself a future by gobbling up the unused land. But also... He does have servants. Which means that he's utilizing all of his servants, he says, not to work his land, but to work the wall. So his personal wealth, he's not taking a salary. His personal wealth is actually going towards the practice of community development. I'm going to be so invested in this, that not only my present, but I'm giving tons of my servants, who in any logical world would be working land to make income for me so they can kind of offset the work that they're doing they're going to be put purely to building the wall but lastly that's only the first two parts of this lastly he says that he was feeding 150 people per day at his table any takers on that? 150 people per day, and that food amounted to a day, mind you, an ox, six sheep, and birds, as well as wine in abundance every 10th day, which that must have been party day. Hopefully, you got the invite on party day, right? In other words, now look, that, that kind of glosses over on many of us, but remember the normal meal for a, an average person did not involve meat. Meat is expensive because if you want meat, it's coming out of your herds and you'd have to replace them. And maybe you don't have enough land to have enough herds to have enough meat that they could actually replace themselves enough for you to eat them all the time. Nehemiah is spending money out of his own pocket every day on an ox, six sheep, some chickens or whatever they ate, and and wine every tenth day for 150 people. Everyone who he invites to his table, which when he talks about everyone, he says the Jews, which is like the common folks, and then some officials, and then whoever, the out-of-towners, right? The out-of-towners. And so he's, he's taking care of all of these people. And that would have been, of course, in addition to grain and vegetables and all this stuff. So you cannot read this and not come away. This guy, Nehemiah, is wealthy, exorbitantly wealthy. He, he's a wealthy dude. He's been, he's been the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And now he is using all of that wealth for others. He's not accepting a salary. He's putting his personal resources to the work of developing the community. And he's paying loads of money to feed others. What we see here is a person who is accepting a kind of downward mobility. Voluntary downward mobility refusing the rights that he has. Because he had a right to that salary. He's doing a lot of work. He has a right to support himself and, and to support all of his servants with land. He has a right to do all those things. He's refusing those rights and he's spending himself to see others flourish. So that's what we see. But now let's bring this home looking at grace and mobility. What drives somebody to do that? I mean, think with me. What drives someone to give up their rights to seek the flourishing of others at that kind of cost to himself? What does that? Because that is bizarre. That is bizarre. In our, None of us in this room would ever imagine thinking of doing something like that. Who is going to have someone come to them and say, hey, here's your salary, and you're like, no thanks, I'm good. I'm good, I'm fine. And they're like, okay. Well, so there's all these fields in town that no one is using. Uh, you can easily buy them up, support yourself. And you're like, dude, if I do that, my servants can't work on the wall. I get, there's, a, there's a wall. They got to work. No, no, we're fine. We're fine. They're just going to go work on the wall. This is good. We're, we're good. And then finally, they're like, uh, look at this guest list. Is this right? Because I'm not sure you get how much this is going to cost. You're like, no, no, I get it. It's one ox, six sheep, a bunch of birds, and... Um, Man, get out the good wine for this one. You got out the good wine yesterday. Yeah, I know. Get out some more. We got got people to feed. And and by the way, make sure that, like as we're rotating through this guest list, make sure you get everybody in the town at some point. We got to get everybody in here. This is crazy. But Nehemiah gives us the answer. Look down at verse 15, because he says he did all of this because of the fear of the Lord. He did all of this because of the fear of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean what it sounds like to us, because when most of us hear the fear of the Lord, we think, if I don't do this, God's going to squish me. Like, like he's going to get me. But that's not what the fear of the Lord means. Uh, it, it, It means he's in awe of God. This kind of radical generosity is only possible through the gospel. Here's why. Listen. The only thing that we will never part with is that thing that we think will make us whole. The only thing that you and I will never part ways with is that thing that we think is going to make us whole. It will make us right. Because you and I know we have a problem. We, We think we can make it better. Some of us think we can make it better through our morality, like earning our place before God. Others of us think of, think of it by using our stuff, like money is going to satisfy us and, and give us security because that's what's wrong. But, but we know, because we've tried it, it's never enough. But The Bible says that the reason that we know something is wrong is because we do have a problem, and that problem comes from our broken relationship with God. But God has come to mend that relationship through Jesus. See, we are, we are made whole. We are reconciled to God through Jesus. And so when you've placed your faith in Christ, when you realize that your status before God isn't in how good you're doing, but in how good He was, when you realize that, that your satisfaction is bound up in the fact that, that that restlessness that you feel is because you were made for the God that you're now alienated from, and, and if you place your faith in Christ, you're restored to to Him, when you realize that your security is bound up in Christ because the only thing that that none of us can actually fight is death, but that Jesus overcame it through His resurrection, when you realize that all of those things are bound up in Jesus and nothing else, then everything else becomes marginalized. Those things go from what was ultimate to us to just being good. And so you can use it to see others flourish because you no longer need it. You have everything you need. In Jesus. Lastly, let's talk about being grace to give. Everything in our culture conspires to convince us that we don't have enough. Doesn't it? What if that's a lie? No, I mean really. I mean really, like what if it's really a lie? Not just like the Christian answer, of course it's a lie, Rick, of course, I know it's a lie. What if it's really a lie? What if the primary message of everything from billboards to Hulu ads is creating a sense of needs, creating a sense of need in you and in me that it can never fill? What if it's selling you a false bill of sale? What if Jesus was in fact right and it actually is more blessed to give than to receive? Because you notice he didn't say you'll be more blessed if you give. <laughs> That's not what he said. That would mean like you've got something to do and then you're going to get blessing from it. What he said is it is more blessed. He's pointing out what it means to be blessed. You, you give. Because listen to me, the Bible tells us that everything we have is from God. Everything we have is is from God. And I know that you worked a ton to get where you are today. I know you did. Okay, I did too. It's not like we didn't work. But I often wonder where my life would be if God hadn't placed me in a family where I was told almost daily that I was going to go to college. You're going to go. It wasn't an option. Look, my mom's shaking her head right now. She's like, nope. It was not. Mm. It was not. And, and wasn't told daily that I could accomplish whatever I set my mind to. Where, where would I be? You had no control over where, when, and to whom you were born. And frankly, that has an awful lot to do with where you are today. Everything we have is from God. The Bible also tells us that we were made in God's image. We were made like Him. That means that we were made not to secure and, and exploit our own rights. But, but in fact, to, to like Jesus... Give them up to see others flourish, to to use those rights to see other people flourish instead of us. And that includes our money. So, some of you have been here and you've heard me say these kind of things before. It shouldn't shock you. But what would it look like for you and me, us, to practice voluntary downward mobility? so that our community flourishes. What would it look like to disadvantage ourselves so that others might be advantaged? Sounds extreme, right? It can be. Certainly was for Nehemiah, but let's start small. What are some small places that you could start voluntarily pulling your lifestyle back? To free you to give more over your tithe. I'm not talking about tithing, I'm talking about giving to organizations that might need it, to others, to, to those that you know who are in need, to, maybe to, to groups like Young Lives, or to our Mercy Fund, which is specifically for the care of those who are in crisis, or, or maybe even to the Valley Mission. I don't really care. <laughs> What would it look like for you to voluntarily pull your lifestyle back? Could it be not eating out so often? If you have a family like mine, that can get pricey, even if you're doing Mickey's. You know what I mean? Like, you go going to Mickey D's, it's still, whew. Or maybe it means no Starbucks this month. Maybe it means waiting till that movie comes out on Redbox to see it. $1. fifty is a lot better than the, whatever it costs to go out. Or maybe it's simply realizing you probably don't need a TV the size of your living room wall, right? This is just individually, right? We haven't even begun to talk about business practices or how we use the stuff we already have. Let me encourage you with something. We're learning more about this during our education hour in our cross-training class when helping hurts. I would invite you to come and explore this with us during that time. But let's spend this week asking that question, what might it look like to voluntarily take downward mobility so that others might flourish? Let's start small, but then commit to growing, to look like our Savior, who is radically generous with us, becoming poor, so that through His poverty, you and I might become rich. Would you pray with me? Father, You have willed that we might be rich in Christ. And Lord Jesus, You, uh, by Your grace, voluntarily stepped down, took a huge lifestyle hit to come and be incarnate in our world, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we dare not so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might flourish, so that we might become rich as humanity was made to be rich in relationship with with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you might give us grace even now to begin thinking through, and not just thinking about it, but actually putting into practice that kind of radical generosity that can only be fueled by the gospel of Christ. Let this church be known as a radically generous place. A place full of people who are willing to disadvantage themselves, to see others advantaged. Not just because we care for the, for the vulnerable, but because of, we care much about the glory of our God. Because what will the world say when they see such a people except there must be a God who is gracious So we ask that you would do all these things for the sake of your great name and for our good and for the good of our city. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.